0: Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Thanks so much for joining us online. Whether you have come to Frontline for years and years, or maybe this is your first time joining in with us, watching online. Maybe you were invited by somebody. We're thrilled that you decided to take this time and join us for Easter. And so we're going to be looking today at a story in Mark chapter 10. And honestly, this is not at all the Easter that I thought we were going to have or that I thought I was going to be doing. Um, This has been such a a strange time. And so, what we're looking at today, I think, is going to be something, though, that God wants to speak to us. I think He's going to meet us right where we are as we look at this story. I think we're going to see ourselves a little bit in it. We've been following Jesus and His disciples through the Gospel of Mark. And so, today, we're going to look at this story in Mark 10, and uh, we're going to just allow God to speak to us in the midst of that. To set up kind of the conversation that Jesus has with His disciples, uh, I have four boys, and they're all at home in our house right now. And for my wife and I, we know our four boys know the rules of shotgun. I'm guessing if you have kids in your house, you your kids know the rules of shotgun. Maybe you grew up in a home where you guys did shotgun. Basically, here's how shotgun works. Anytime we're about to leave in the car to go anywhere, our boys get into this huge competition to find out who can call shotgun first. They say, I call shotgun, and whoever calls shotgun first gets to ride in the front seat. The front seat is where they want to be. The front seat is where you can control the radio. It's where you can control the air conditioning. If you're in the front seat, you've got the most leg room. I mean, it's the greatest seat. That's where you want to be is riding shotgun in the front seat. Uh, One time, actually, I was leaving my house to go pick up my boys. They were somewhere else, and I was going to get in my car. And right as I was about to get in my car, uh, my phone dings. I look down, and it's a text from one of my boys. And the text just said, I call shotgun which I actually think is a violation of the rules of shotgun. I don't think that's even allowed. My boys would call shotgun if they were being arrested and try being put in the back of a cop car. They, they go ruthless with each other about this. Whenever one of them feels like they've been treated unfairly with shotgun, what they do is they try to appeal to me or to their mother. And so what they'll say to me is, Dad, he got shotgun last time. That's not fair. Or, Dad, I called shotgun first, but then he got in the front seat anyway. And so what they're wanting me to do is they want me to make some kind of ruling on their behalf on whether or not they get to sit in the front seat or not. The reason I tell you that is because in this story we're going to look at today, Jesus and his 12 disciples are traveling. And they are en route to Jerusalem, and it's the last week of Jesus' life. And what happens in this moment is two of Jesus' disciples try to call shotgun. They try to appeal to Jesus to make sure that they have the seat that they want. So let's look at this together. This is Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 35. And here's how the conversation goes. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request he asked? Here it is. They replied, "When you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left." Now to understand what's happening here, to give you a little a bit of context, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through what's known as the Judean-Perean border. They're near the town of Jericho. And so they're going toward Jerusalem and they're entering Jerusalem from the east. Now, why is that important? The reason that's important is because that is the exact route that all the kings of old took on their coronation. So it's a big moment Ever since the feeding of the 5,000, there's been this rumor. There's been these simmerings going on that Jesus is going to be the next king of Israel. Everybody's, you know, whispering about it. All these rumors are happening. Is Jesus going to be the one? Is he going to be the king who is going to become the king of Israel? He's going to overthrow the Romans, and he's going to make us into a great nation again. That's what people are wondering. And now, James and John are aware Jesus is leading them into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where kings go. Jerusalem is where the kings reign from. And so they're sensing how big a moment this is. And they are essentially trying to ask the question, can can we get in on this? Can, Can we be a part of where this story is going? Can we get our tickets now? Can we reserve our seats now? That's what they're trying to do. Now, we have to ask the question, what did it mean to sit to the right or to the left of the king? Uh, The seats that were to the right and the left of the king, when the king was on his throne, he would put his most trusted advisors to his right or to his left on either side of either ear. And so it's long understood in the ancient world that those were honored seats. The most trusted advisors of the king would sit there. In fact... Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus records that for Saul, who was the first king of Israel, that Saul had his son Jonathan sitting to his right, and on his left was Abner, who was an important military figure in his kingdom. And so from the very beginning, from the very first king of Israel, these two seats were held by the most honored high positions in the land. So what's happening here is James and John think they know where this story is going. They think they know what's about to happen as they're going into Jerusalem. And basically, they're trying to write themselves into the story. They want Jesus to give them these two honored positions. They're calling shotgun and they're saying, Jesus, we think you need advisors. We're two of your best friends. We think we have something to offer you. We think we could give you some advice. We think we could hold these positions and be of help to you in your kingdom. They think they know where the story is going. I don't know about you, I see myself a little bit in James and John. Uh, I go back even just a month ago, we thought we knew where the story was going, didn't we? We thought we knew what was going to be happening in our lives. Uh, We thought we knew how much money we were going to have in the bank a month ago. We thought before this whole coronavirus crisis happened, we thought we knew what job we were going to have, many of us. We thought we knew what kind of job security we were going to have. We thought we knew what vacation we were going to be taking for spring break. Some of you are supposed to be on that vacation, maybe even right now. But just like James and John, they had no idea where the story was really going. They had no idea what was about to actually happen in in Jesus' kingdom. And so I want you to take a look at how Jesus very graciously responds to their request. They want to know, can we sit at your right or to your left? This is how Jesus responds, verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? So what Jesus does here is he responds by speaking about the cross. He talks about drinking a bitter cup of suffering. In the Old Testament, um, it, was, it was described as the, the cup of God's wrath that was poured out. And so the baptism uh, of suffering, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about how he's going to offer himself and die on a cross in a sacrificial death to pay for the sins of all mankind, uh, of you, of me, of all of us. And he begins to speak to them about this because Jesus' idea of his kingdom coming, Jesus' idea of him coming into his power and coming into his kingdom was very different than the idea that James and John had in their head of what that was going to look like. Here is the issue for James and John. They wanted the position, but they didn't want the process. James and John, they wanted the position of sitting to the right or to the left of Jesus, but they didn't want the process. They wanted the end result, but they didn't want what it was going to take to get there. And I look at that and I say, you know, that's me too a lot of the time. Uh, Even when I just think back at the beginning of the month of March, March and April were supposed to be really busy months for me. I remember looking at my calendar, end of February, beginning of March, and thinking to myself, man, I don't know how I'm going to do all these things. Our, our calendar was full. Uh, I have a son who was going to be in track. Uh, a couple of my boys were going to be in a play. There was all kinds of stuff going on at church, you know, kind of preparing for Easter. And and so I, I literally remember, <laughs> this is so weird to think about because it seems like it was so long ago. I remember actually praying a prayer and saying to God, God, will you please during the season, will you reduce my schedule a little bit? Will you give me more time with my family? Uh, God, will you take some things off my, my schedule so I just have some more room? I, I, I prayed that prayer. I, got, I wanted God to answer that prayer. But what I didn't want was the process. I didn't want this process. I didn't want this to be how that happened. And that's oftentimes what happened. We say, God, will you bless me? Will you take care of me? Will you give me security? But, but we don't want the process that's involved with getting there. What's interesting is if you follow the storyline here, James and John don't get these positions they're asking for. They don't get to sit to the right and to the left of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. But what's interesting is some, somebody does. When Jesus comes into his kingdom, when he comes into his glory and his power, there are two people who get the opportunity to sit to his right and to his left. Let's fast forward a little bit, a few chapters forward in the Gospel of Mark. This is Mark 15, verse 27. Jesus is being crucified by the Romans right now. Verse 27 says this, They crucified two rebels with him. Some translations say two criminals with him. One on his right and one on his left. Did, did you catch that? Now, now, here's the question. Why does Mark say it like that? I mean, literally, Mark could have said it. And he could have said, you know, uh, there were two other guys on the hill that got crucified with Jesus. Mark could have said, you know, there was two other guys. They were kind of in the same vicinity on the same hill. He could have said anyway. Mark chooses to say it. He wants us to understand Jesus is in the middle, and there's a guy on his right, and there's a guy on his left. Why does he say it so specifically like that? It's because of the conversation that Jesus has with James and John that we were just looking at together. See, see Mark wants us to understand. The way he's telling the story, he wants us to get it that Jesus coming into his kingdom, Jesus coming into his power, Jesus sitting on his throne did not look like some grand entrance to a palace. It, It didn't look like some glorious moment with a throne and a beautiful crown with jewels in it. It looked like a cross. It looked like suffering. Jesus... At the moment when he was put on the cross, that was the moment that Jesus came into his kingdom. That was the moment he fulfilled all the prophecies about him. That was the moment that he came into his power. That was Jesus as king, was him on the cross. And it's two criminals, two rebels that get the honored position of, of sitting to Jesus right and, and to his left when he comes into his kingdom. Two people who were emptied of any kind of social status. They were emptied of any kind of bragging rights. They they couldn't even help themselves. They couldn't even save themselves. And and where was James and John at this moment? James and John, as Jesus is being crucified, they're standing back from a distance and they're watching it and in their eyes, this is a defeat. This is the moment, the story is over. In fact, the, the, the gospels record that after Jesus died, the, the disciples scattered because they assumed the story is over, this is how it ends, this is the end of the tale. But the cross wasn't the end of the story. The cross was just part of the process. It's part of God's process. See, see, the gospel writers in this moment, they're winking and, and they're saying, this moment looks like a defeat, but really It's a victory. The gospel writers are trying to say that's the secret of the gospel. This great exchange took place on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 describes the gospel this way. I love the way that Paul describes the gospel. He says that God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin on our behalf so that in him, so that in Jesus, we could become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took your place in the back seat so you could ride shotgun. That's what the cross is about. Jesus took our place and made it possible for us to have the front seat. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for me. That's what he did for James and John. Here's the problem. For many of us, we live our lives as if we're still in the back seat. We live our lives as, as if we're still sitting in the back seat. In terms of how we think about ourselves, in terms of how we think about our future, in terms of how we think about even just the power that's available to us to live our lives, we act like we still sit in the back seat. Maybe for some of us, we feel like we messed up. And so we don't deserve to sit in the front seat. Maybe we don't feel like we have what it takes to be good enough to, to sit in the front seat. But the beauty of the gospel message isn't in what we've done, isn't in what, how we qualify ourselves. It's in what Jesus did on our behalf. That's the power. That, that's the beauty of the cross. And that's the hope that we have uh, as, as we come to this moment, as we come to this story. And so what does that mean for us If if we're still sitting in the back seat, what does that mean for us? What that means is that God looks at us, and He doesn't condemn us. The way that God views us in our lives is He views us as being still in process. He looks at us, and He says, we're still learning. That person right there, they're still sitting in the back seat because they're still learning who they are. They're still learning who Jesus is. They're still in process. Their story isn't over. That's how God views us. That's how he views you and me. Have you ever had a moment in life where you just felt like someone treated you like your story was over? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you believed that? that you, Maybe you believed that your story truly was over. I had an experience like that. Uh, when I was 21 years old, I was um, at the very end of getting my ministry degree so I could go and become a pastor. Uh, but there was one more important step that I had to take in order to become a pastor, and what I had to do is I had to go sit in an interview with a group of people, a board known as the District Board of Ministerial Development, the DBMD. Sounds really fancy, but if I passed this interview, then I got what's called my ministerial license, and then I could go on to become ordained. I won't bore you with the process, but it was a really important step. So the big day came, and I remember I, I got my suit and my tie and everything. I got I got to the point where I looked apart, and I went in for this huge interview and I sat down in front of this entire board in a boardroom to do this interview to qualify me to get my ministerial license. Now, what I didn't know was that the director of that board uh, did not approve of a ministry I had been a part of in college. He wasn't a fan of it. And so he knew I was coming that day. And I kind of found all this out later, but it was like he was ready for me. You know, it was like a tiger ready to pounce. I mean, he was ready for that moment. And so I have this memory of coming and sitting down, and I had this idea in my head of how that interview was going to go. I thought I knew where that story was headed. And for an hour, this guy just you know, threw the book at me, and I did terrible. I I was nervous. I, I remember just getting really sweaty. I couldn't answer any question correctly. It just went about as bad as you can possibly imagine it going. And the whole interview ended with this guy basically berating me in front of the whole board and rejecting me and saying, I will not sign for you to have your ministerial license. I don't think you belong as a pastor. And that was the end of the interview. I will never forget the feeling of walking out of that boardroom, because in my head, that was the end of the story. It was over. And, And it wasn't the power of that moment wasn't so much in what he said to me in his words. The power of that moment was in what I believed about myself. Because here's the truth. Underneath that suit and tie, I already believed I didn't have what it took to be a pastor. I already had looked at my life and summed up that I didn't have what it took. And so this moment of rejection to me was just sort of confirmation of what I thought must already be true, that the story was over, that this was it. But I'm here to tell you that was not the end of the story. I was still in process. And God used that event in my life to humble me and to make me aware that every single day I'm alive, I need God's power in my life. I need to rest and trust in the person of Jesus. Even as a pastor now, I think to myself on a regular basis, like, I'm not good enough to have this job. And that's not a bad thing. God used that event in my life to transform me into this place of dependence upon the person of Jesus. I know every single day how much I need to rest and trust in his power. That event came full circle for me several years later in ministry. It was a baptism Sunday. And uh, we were at Frontline, and there was a a lot of people coming forward, coming up front to the the platform to get baptized. And I remember uh, there was a family who was attending our church at that time, and the father, the husband, used to be a pastor, But he had had a pretty rough story. He'd made some really bad mistakes that had gotten blown up in the public eye in a really serious way. He'd lost his job. He'd lost his opportunity to be a pastor. And so he and his family kind of came to our church after that event as a place to kind of hide and to heal. And on this particular Baptism Sunday, his daughter, his teenage daughter wanted to get baptized. And so uh, that was the plan. So she came up. It was the moment she came up to get baptized. And I remember she gets in the water. And I look around and I don't see him. Like her, some of her family is there and I don't see him. And I remember looking and I saw him, her, her dad, and he's standing like halfway back, like way back from the stage, way in the back of the room. Now, nobody told him to stand back there. It wasn't, the power wasn't in what anybody had said to him. It had to do with what he believed about himself. I'll never forget looking out and just seeing him standing back there, and that moment spoke volumes to me about what he must believe about himself. And so I just felt like the Lord told me in that moment, just just call him up. And so I remember just kind of looking at him and pointing and just going like this. And he kind of you know looks around like and does one of these and like, and I, and I'm I'm standing there going like this, like, yes, like I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even proceed until he finally came forward. And so finally, he kind of shrugs his shoulders. He makes his way forward. And he got on one side, I got on the other. And he got to baptize his daughter. And I got to tell you, as a father and as a pastor, there's no greater joy than being able to to baptize your children. I've been able to baptize all four of my boys. Here's what he told me after the service was over. This has stuck with me ever since that day. Listen to his words. He said, thank you. I thought I had forfeited my chance to do that. Listen to me very closely. You are not done. Your story is not over. You are still in process. If you believe your story is over, do not turn off this, the screen right now, okay? Because I want to show you how the story ends. I want to show you what we celebrate here on Easter because this is uh, the end of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 16, verse 5, it says this, "...when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, "'Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body.'" Now, I just want to point out the angel was sitting where? Mark makes a point of telling us he's sitting to the right side. But why does he include that detail? Why Why does he say that? It's because Jesus has risen from the grave... And now it's not criminals sitting to his right or to his left. Now it's the heavenly beings because Jesus has fulfilled his kingdom. He's fulfilled the work that had to be done on our behalf. He he took our place in the back seat so that we could sit in the front seat. And he rose to new life so that we could have a new life in him. That's what Jesus did for us. That's the hope of the gospel. That's That's the hope of what we celebrate is this new life that we have in Jesus. And so what is our response to that? Our response to that is to come to a place of understanding that your position is secured for you not by anything you do to prove yourself, not by anything that you have failed to do. Your position is secured for you by what Jesus did on your behalf. And it's coming to a place where you surrender yourself to his process. What does that mean? It means that we don't bring our strength, we bring our weakness. We talked about this last week. We don't bring our solutions as if we have some great advice to offer God. We bring our surrender. We don't bring our power. We bring our dependence on Him. That's what we do. We trust and we rest in what Jesus did on our behalf. And so, uh, right now we're going to put a prayer up on the screen because the way you enter into that is just to come before God and just to step in to what he's done for you already on the cross. And so this prayer is going to be up on the screen and maybe today, uh, this is a moment for you. Maybe, you know, it's time to pray this prayer of surrender, this prayer of salvation and give your life to Jesus. And You know, what it looks like to do that is different for all of us. Maybe for for you, maybe you prayed this prayer at one time in your life. Maybe you said these words. But uh, as things have happened, maybe you found yourself sitting in the back seat. You've lived your life in the back seat, still kind of questioning whether you're good enough or whether you, you have enough. Jesus took your place in the back seat so you could ride in the front seat, so you could be with the Father, so that your future and your eternity could be in Him. And so I want to invite you to pray this prayer. If you've never prayed this prayer before, if this is all new to you, I want to invite you to pray this, uh, even there at home, sitting in your living room. Uh, Let's just go to the Lord together today. Jesus, today I recognize my story is not over. I confess that I have sinned and failed, and I ask you to be Lord of my life. I believe you paid the price for my sin on the cross and that you rose from the grave to give me new life in you. Today, I give you my life. I submit to your process, and I will learn to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, if you just prayed that prayer, what we believe is that you just surrendered your life to Jesus, that you just got saved. And so we celebrate that as a church That's what we exist for. We exist to help people find that new life in Him. And and so here's uh, what I'm going to ask you to do. If you just prayed that prayer, uh, there's another screen that's going up right now in, in front of you on your screen. We would love for you to let us know that you made that decision because here's what we understand. This moment right now, praying that prayer, surrendering your life to Jesus, that's not a finish line event in your life. That's a starting line event. God, you're, you're at the beginning of what God wants to do in your life. God wants to continue to do more and more and to continue to work in your life. And so what we want you to do is, is we want to connect with you. I want to connect with you. I want to celebrate this with you. And I want to help you take some next steps on your journey. And so if you would, do uh, just respond uh, by doing what it says to do on the screen there by texting Um, what it says to that number 31996 and letting us know and we we will uh, connect with you we'd love to celebrate this with you and we're just thrilled that you made this decision today praise God for people who are stepping into new life right now praise God for people who are who are coming to this place of realizing that it's not what they've done or what they failed to do that qualifies them it's what Jesus did for us that allows us to know him allows us to have an eternity and I don't know about you I think our world needs that I think we need that message right now this is is a time of putting our hope in something that's true hope uh, that's real hope and praise God if you took that step we just want to celebrate that with you happy Easter everybody I hope you guys have a great day celebrating with your family we're going to respond right now and we're going to sing and so I invite you to do that with us